Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold that you are sending to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. The men did so. They took two milch cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the gold mice and the images of their tumors. The cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them, as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. I just want to underline how very bizarre that little passage from the first book of Samuel is. The setting is in the Philistine city of Ekron, and the Philistines have the ark. That is right, they have that ark, the ark of the covenant, the one that Indiana Jones set out to find. And they take it, and they put it in a cart. But there is something even more bizarre than that. In a chest that they put alongside the ark, the Philistines place idols made out of precious gold. And what are they images of? Of mighty Philistine gods? Not at all. They are tiny idols, some in the shape of mice, and some in the shape of tumors. Except the translation of the word tumor is hardly certain. There are some who think that it should have been translated as hemorrhoids, which would make it even more bizarre, of course. I'm not sure anyone has any idea how you would make a sculpture out of hemorrhoids. But, as strange as all of this is, it's still not the most bizarre part of the scene. Next, the Akronites yoke up some animals to pull the cart. But they do not use what you're supposed to use. They do not take oxen, which were bred and <clears throat> fixed and trained to be excellent at pulling things. They instead take milch cows, nursing mother cows, who have never pulled anything. And, to make it worse, these poor cows have their calves taken away from them and shut up in a barn nearby. This is, to be clear, an act of animal cruelty. The cow's udders are painfully swollen with milk and they can hear their children crying out in hunger. 
every instinct in their bodies would be insisting that they run to them. But they can't. They are yoked to a cart and sent off in entirely the opposite direction. So, what would you think if you came upon such a remarkable scene? You would assume, would you not, that there must be quite some story behind it. You would, of course, be entirely correct. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.13 A Cart Full of Tumors and an Ark The man was incredulous. You want me to make... What? The tyrant of the city of Ekron was not used to anyone hesitating when he told them to do something. Listen, he said. I was told that you are the best smith in all Philistia. That you can make anything out of gold. So either you can do what I'm asking or you can't. Just tell me if you can make sculptures of mice and of tumors. The goldsmith was indignant. I'll have you know, my lord, that I was the man who made the sculpture of the mistress in Ashdod. I've made some of the most beautiful items in all the land. Of course I can make a tumor. Of course I can make a mouse. But why would anyone need a golden tumor? What madness has descended upon the great people of the Philistines that my art would be reduced to making such objects? Ah, you haven't heard. You see, we, the tyrants of the cities, have some theories about the latest troubles we have been dealing with. The tyrant and the goldsmith sat down for a glass of wine together, and the tyrant told the story. There had been a plague spreading throughout the coastal plain for several weeks now. It had started in Ashdod, spreading from there to Gath, and now, in recent days, it had arrived in Ekron. The first signs of the disease always seemed to be the same. The victims broke out in tumors, swellings on the body that were also called buboes. These painful growths often appeared on the private parts, or sometimes on the armpit or the neck. They were extremely painful, causing great suffering among the people. 
Many of those who fell victim to them died soon after. It was a horrible epidemic, and people everywhere were in a panic. If the goldsmith had not heard of what was happening, it was only because he had been isolated and working in his shop intensely over the last week. He had shunned all contact while focusing on his latest work, a beautiful sculpture that had been commissioned for the sanctuary at Gath. But once he understood the urgency of the matter, he was willing to put that aside to be whatever help he could. So, I think I understand why you want me to make the tumors, he offered. Whatever gods are causing this terrible sickness, they are obviously obsessed with these buboes that you talk about. You are thinking that perhaps they will be distracted if I make shiny gold ones. Yes, replied the tyrant. At least that is one of our theories. But then, why the golden mice? What have they to do with this sickness? Well, that brings us to our second theory. Many of our priests and philosophers have noted that the spread of the disease has also been accompanied by infestations of rodents. The animals first appeared on the docks at Ashdod, probably carried in on some ships. They spread from there, infesting our storehouses and barns. And wherever they spread, the disease seems to follow soon after. And so it is thought that there must be some connection between the little beasts and the cause of the illness. I personally think that is silly, of course. What could possibly be the connection between vermin and sickness? But some have suggested that the gods might only be placated with gifts, honoring the mice, for each of the Philistine cities, and it has been decided to cover all of the bases. And so, the goldsmith agreed. He made beautiful work of the commission, as bizarre as the design seemed to him. He was very proud when he brought them to the tyrant of the city to present them. The golden tumors and the mice were collected and placed in a special box that had been commissioned from a master carpenter. And then, as the goldsmith stood back, he waited to see what else might be needed to placate the gods. He was somewhat surprised to see a large chest brought forward. It was covered over with beaten metal. His expert eye quickly swept over what seemed to him to be rather inferior artisanship. The alloy might have contained some gold in it, but it was certainly nowhere near the quality of what could be obtained from Philistine kilns. On the top 
were crude sculptures of heavenly creatures. It was clearly not a piece of Philistine artistry. But he could see how it might be revered by a more rustic people. By this point, he and the local tyrant had struck up a bit of a friendship, and so, as they stood together, he asked him about the chest. Oh, that... That's theory three. The most ridiculous one of all, as far as I'm concerned. That chest is a prize of war. It was won in a battle with a group of Hebrews up in the hills at Ebenezer months ago. These Hebrews, or at least some of them, have an odd idea that their chief god can't have images made of him. The goldsmith snorted at that very idea. He took it, perhaps understandably, as an insult to his profession. Anyways, the tyrant went on, instead of making statues of their god, they made this box as a kind of portable throne upon which their invisible god can sit. That way, they can carry him around with them, like they did when they fought against us Philistines. But I guess their god didn't come through for them, and we captured his fancy seat. Both men had a good laugh at the foolish beliefs of the hill-dwelling tribes, but eventually the goldsmith wiped the tears of laughter from his eyes and asked his friend what any of this had to do with the plague that had been spreading among the Philistine cities. Well, answered the tyrant, as a trophy of war, this box throne was naturally sent on a victory tour of the cities. Everyone was invited to come into the local sanctuaries and have a chance to laugh at the Hebrew god. This was all well and good, though there were some rumors of a mishap at the temple in Ashdod. It seems some troublemakers snuck into the temple at night and played a practical joke where they toppled over the statue of the local god to make it look as if the Hebrew god had somehow defeated it. Everybody laughed at just how ridiculous that idea was. But, shortly after those events, and perhaps it was not unconnected, as people are always superstitious when anyone seems to be mocking gods, a rumor started to spread. People started to say that the course of the plague had followed the same route as the victory tour of the Hebrew trophy. Of course, the whole idea was hogwash. Sure, it was true that the plague started in Ashdod, but these things often seem to start at the coast, and the route of the plague didn't follow the victory tour after that. But you know how impressionable people are. Once they get some idea of a connection, they just can't let it go. 
And so people have started saying that this whole plague is caused by the angry Hebrew God who wants to have his throne back. So the leaders of the people have decided to make a demonstration to the people to show them how foolish they are being. We've told them that we'll put the Hebrew box in the cart and if he wants to go home, well, he can arrange his own transportation there. The plan was simple. Once the cart was prepared with the Hebrew box, the chest of golden mice and tumors, and a gift of some grain from the storehouse that had been infested with vermin, the tyrant made an announcement. Beasts would be brought and attached to the cart. But if the god of the Hebrews wanted his box back, he would have to direct the beasts. If they pulled the cart immediately towards the Hebrew hill country, that would be the sign. But if they pulled it in any other direction, then the people could put their minds at ease. The plague clearly had nothing to do with foreign gods. So that was the test. And once it had been explained, the beasts were brought out and yoked to the cart. But as soon as they appeared, everyone could see that something was wrong. The animals that appeared were not oxen. They were cows. And not just any cows, but mothers who had recently given birth. Their udders were so swollen with milk that the cows were bellowing in pain. They were turning and looking in every direction for their calves because everyone could hear them too. They had been shut away in some barn somewhere and were crying out in hunger to feed. Both the cows and the calves cried so piteously that there was scarcely a person present who was unmoved by the display. But it was also obvious to everyone what the outcome was bound to be. Of course the cows would turn aside and seek their young. It was in their nature to do whatever they could to feed their children. Thus it would be proven that no foreign god had had anything to do with the plague. Perhaps then the people would just be quiet and let the rulers get on with ruling. And so, once everything had been put in place, the whole crowd fell silent as the two men holding the cow's halters unceremoniously let go. The silence deepened as mouth after mouth fell open in amazement at what happened next. The cows, still lowing from the pain in their udders, began to walk steadily away from the sound of their starving children and up the slope 
towards the hill country of the Hebrew tribes. Not too many noticed something else. The road behind them was moving as well. It seemed that many of the rodents that had been infesting the various Philistine cities had decided to move on, to follow the cart up into the hills. The people of Beth Shemesh were out in the fields, for it was harvest time. They looked up from their hard labor and were confronted by a great wonder. They saw a cart drawn by two cows that were loudly complaining. How could they not all cast down their implements and run after this strange sight? It was not easy to catch the cows that were running as if the Satan himself were pursuing them but one of them eventually managed to calm the animals down. Their eyes were wide and they were panting hard. And so finally, the peasants were able to explore the contents of the strangely drawn cart. They were amazed to discover the wooden box that was filled with these exquisitely crafted golden mice as well as strange lumps of the metal that they couldn't quite identify. They were puzzled by the pile of rotting grain invested with vermin. But of course, they were filled with wonderment above all when they recognized the Ark of the Covenant of the tribes of Israel that had once rested at the sanctuary at Shiloh. They knew that it had been taken by the Philistines in a battle. But how it came to be here, they had no idea. Only later would strange and confused stories of terrible plagues and toppled gods filter in from the coastal plains. In the moment, confronted by a mystery that they couldn't understand, all they felt they could do was honor the god who had brought about this great wonder. The poor cows, who had endured so much abuse, were slaughtered and burned on the altar. As the people of Beth Shemesh feasted on the milch cows afterwards, they spoke about what they should do with the ark. They knew that its proper place was at the sanctuary at Shiloh, where many of them had seen it when they had gone to sacrifice there. But it could not be sent back there. At least the word that had been spread was that the sanctuary had been destroyed by the Philistines. Some suggested that they should take advantage of this opportunity. If only they built a new home for the Ark here, Beth Shemesh could become a new cult center. 
people would travel from far and wide to sacrifice to Yahweh here, and it would be a wonderful boon to the local economy. And so they went to work, setting up a simple tent to house the chest. But since none of them were hereditary priests or Levites, they didn't really know what they were doing. Their setup didn't really seem to live up to what they had experienced at Shiloh. When, several days later, the plague began to spread in their community, they quickly came to the conclusion that their lack of knowledge of priestly matters was at fault. They must have done something wrong in their handling of the ark. Perhaps they had not shown it sufficient respect, especially when a few of them had dared to look inside the chest as they put it in its place. Or perhaps the problem was that, having little experience in performing sacrifice, some of them had left some of the remains of the sacrificial victims lying around in the town, which resulted in an awful smell and the attraction of a number of feral animals. Gods, apparently, didn't like their offerings treated like that. The plague raged for weeks. As a first symptom, victims would discover painful tumors growing on their armpits and private parts. They recognized these growths immediately. Now they understood what the strange golden lumps had been in that box. But the knowledge hardly offered them any comfort. Many of those who developed the tumors died, while some survived through a trial of agony. In the end, the community lost 70 people. But in a small place like Beth Shemesh, it might as well have been 50,000. When the plague finally subsided, the survivors decided that they could not provide a home to the Ark. They sent it to the house of Abinadab, a hereditary priest who consecrated his son to care for it. Three years ago, I did an episode that I called Icky Icky Ichabod. In my show notes, I said that Ichabod's story was the beginning of a longer biblical story about the Ark of the Covenant and its journeys. But I largely had left the Ark out of that tale, saying that I would have to come back to it eventually. Recently, one of my amazing listeners, Matthew Mayer, reminded me of the wonders of the story, with some of his own reflection on the story of Uzzah and the Ark. It reminded me that it was past time to get back to this story. But, before getting to Uzzah's big mistake, 
I felt that I needed to deal with this story as necessary background. The story presents a number of interpretive challenges. It is not hard to imagine it as a story that circulated at some point among the Israelites and that was used to build up respect for a powerful cultic object. But there is little reason to think that, if the Ark was in the possession of the Philistines for a time, after having been captured in a battle, the Israelites would have known much about what had happened among them. The story seems to have a number of misconceptions about the Philistines. In particular, it insists, as do a few other biblical stories, that the Philistines worshipped Dagon as their primary deity. Dagon was an ancient Canaanite god, but there seems to be no archaeological evidence of his worship by the Philistines, who were not Canaanite in biblical times. If the Israelites had such misconceptions about their coastal neighbors' gods, it seems unlikely that we can trust other cultural details of this story. And yet there are some things about the story that ring true. Of course there were terrifying plagues in the ancient world, and of course they would have spread with alarming speed among concentrated urban populations such as the Philistines seem to have had. Indeed, there are many things about the plague that is described in this story that are reminiscent of other famous historical plagues from later times. The appearance of tumors or swellings or, to use the technical term, buboes on the body, especially on the private parts and the armpits, is indeed an initial symptom of the black or bubonic plague. Of course, it is also understood that rodents do have a role in the spread of bubonic plague. Not mice specifically, but certainly rats. And, even if ancient people didn't understand the causal connection, this might help to explain the inclusion of golden mice among the offerings put in the cart together with the ark, which is left unexplained, at least in the ancient Hebrew text. And so, even if this story does not go back to a specific plague that infested the Philistine cities while the Ark of the Covenant was in their possession, it is still a fascinating illustration of the terror that such outbreaks would have inspired. Of course, not having a modern understanding of the transmission of diseases, ancient people would have naturally jumped to looking for divine causes. In addition, I've always thought that the connection between improperly performed sacrifices and disease could have been quite direct. One of the major reasons why priesthood was a hereditary position in many ancient Mediterranean societies was in order that new priests would be taught how to slaughter and butcher animals and safely dispose of any animal remains 
in a way that did not encourage the attraction of vermin and the spread of disease. If indeed there were some Israelite tribespeople in a place like Beth Shemesh who attempted to set up a cult around the ark without the esoteric knowledge of how to do such things, perhaps it is not all that surprising that some seventy of the people in that place died from the resulting sickness. I will add just one more note about this story before I leave it. I have generally chosen to follow the story as it is told in the Masoretic text of the book of Samuel. The problem with that is that the Hebrew text is actually quite problematic, and so modern translators often draw from other ancient translations of the Bible to make sense of it, and thus end up telling us a somewhat different story. So, if the story I have told here doesn't quite jive with what you read in your Bible, just make a point of checking the footnotes for the meaning of the original Hebrew before you complain to me. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks, and do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode was River of Io. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible. And I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.